It's the 24th of January, 2015, and this is episode 181. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by two of the authors behind Bitcoin for the Befuddled, Conrad Barsky. Hello. And Chris Wilmer. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, guys, thanks for being here. It's exciting that some of these uh, books on Bitcoin are coming out, and I think that you guys have a very interesting one targeted at newer users. Can you kind of tell us about the Bitcoin for the Befuddled project? What was the goal? Who's the target market? And how long you guys have been working on the project? Uh, so we've been working on it since early 2013. This is Conrad. I had originally been working on just a uh, online comic project related to Bitcoin, but I had already published a couple of books through No Star Press in the past. And just as a lark, since I was doing this work on a comic, I figured, hey, why don't I just ask my publisher, see if they're interested in writing a Bitcoin book? And I thought for sure it was still, uh, you know, kind of early 2013 before I really had hit the radar that they would have no idea what I'm talking about. And it turns out the owner of No Starch Press is actually a big Bitcoin fan. He liked the idea of a book project. So he started in 2013. It just took us a, a little while to get everything together, uh, cover all the material we wanted to have. 2013 is a long time to be working on this book. Did Bitcoin change in any sort of like meaningful ways over that period where you had to actually go back and say, okay, well, this thing was right when we originally were thinking it, but now it's changed? We had a chapter early in the book that just wanted to walk people through buying a few Bitcoins or obtaining Bitcoins from a friend to make a sample transaction. And we had to keep adjusting what a good amount of Bitcoin represented a, a very small quantity. At one point, I think it was like 0.5 Bitcoins was, you know, just for testing. And then later in 2013, that was a ridiculous amount. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we had to do a uh, search and replace on Mount Gox throughout the book at some point. <laughs> so, Chris, how did you wind up writing this book with Conrad? Have you guys been friends for a while or was this kind of a project that just sort of came together? Well, we met via localbitcoins.com. I had been just to sort of spread the good word, uh, put myself up as a seller while I was at Northwestern University in Chicago. Conrad was one of the people that wanted to buy some Bitcoins from me. Of course, he had Bitcoins already, but he just wanted to try out the service. And we met up that way, found that we were both you know, big fans of Bitcoin, uh, into it since 2011. Then Conrad told me about his comic project and how he was thinking about turning it into a book. We just hit it off from there. Local Bitcoins, I'm super curious about that. We hear a lot of people actually kind of citing that as a way that they came together with various people on the project. I mean, have you had other experiences like that or uh, with local Bitcoins too, or was this kind of just the one-off for you guys? This was actually the only time I ever used local Bitcoins uh, just once just to see how the service worked. You know, I mean, that's kind of part of Bitcoin is getting an understanding of how all the different pieces of the community fit together. But I think Chris has more experience with uh, using local Bitcoins. I did meet a lot of undergraduates at Northwestern University who wanted to buy Bitcoins from me. And I did get involved in other Bitcoin projects, but it wasn't through local Bitcoins. There is a Bitcoin meetup here in Pittsburgh I've gone to, which is where I am now. And another project of mine, if I could briefly plug, is a peer-reviewed academic journal that focuses on Bitcoin research. And that was through people I met on Bitcoin Talk and, and the Reddit Bitcoin community. 
So there's lots of ways to meet Bitcoin people and, and spin off new projects. You know, that's not the first time I've heard the idea of a peer-reviewed Bitcoin journal. Do you mind if I ask how far along you are or, you know, what you think the kind of uh, trajectory for that project is? When we started talking about that, me and Peter Risen and a few other people from the Bitcoin Talk Forums, we quickly, I think, found several other groups around the world that were thinking about doing the same thing. Unless there's a project I'm unaware of, it sounded like I was sort of in the best position via my academic connections to get a journal launched with a university publisher. So a lot of these separate projects converged, I think, onto ours. And so our journal, which is called Ledger, with the subtitle, The Journal of Cryptocurrency Research, now has a university publisher here at the University of Pittsburgh. And we're going to have a call for papers in a few months. I know there are other projects that are ongoing, and I think they should. I don't think we're really in competition with them that want to do everything, you know, the Bitcoin way, just fully decentralized. It'll there'll be a peer review element to it, but it won't. It won't necessarily be compatible with the the legacy academic publishing system. Whereas that's the route that we're taking. Very cool, Chris. Conrad, you and I met back in 2013 with your project Cointagen, which was like an online bookstore, except it was novel in that it used Bitcoin to make it so people could actually buy and download books without having to uh, essentially create an account or register really any information or weight at all. Can you kind of talk to us? You know, I, I haven't really seen anybody else push down that road. Can you talk to us about the Cointagen innovation and you know, what that was for you? Yeah, uh, so in early 2013, uh, once uh, the price of Bitcoin started going up, that was really the first time I actually understood how Bitcoin worked, because until then, I had just kept all my money at an exchange. And for the first time, I realized, hmm, I can make use of the uh, the decentralized nature of Bitcoin and just uh, keep my money in my own wallet without having to worry about a, a, a third party. And so I, I, that was the first time I actually sent Bitcoin between some Bitcoin addresses after owning them for a couple of years. And what I re- realized only at that moment is, is just how, how uh, brilliant the design is and what kind of new uh, use cases you can come up with. And, and in particular, uh, I was fascinated by the idea that you can basically just create millions of bank accounts independently from everybody else and use them to store money in them. And then it occurred to me, well, w- what if you use uh, millions of uh, accounts and uh, simply attach a unique account to every product for every user on a website. So when you visit the website, it would simply generate uh, unique QR codes for each product you see for that browser session. And, uh, and then you could have something like a vending machine where you could just download a book by sending money to a QR code without any additional step. And so, uh, so I uh, built uh, up this project, Cointagen.com, which is still available and you can buy bitcoin for the befuddled other books there that was uh, where i first started to get into the programming aspect of Bitcoin. i started to understand more about the underlying uh, architecture yeah i'm looking at cointagen right now and i see bitcoin for the befuddled in the upper left slot at uh, 0.068 bitcoin for an instant download and the way that works is that there's a qr code up there for each different uh, item another item is a uh, blender masterclass book unofficial lego technic builder's guide each with its own price and its own address. And if you send to that address, then in your browser immediately upon uh, not a confirmation, but on seeing the broadcast, it starts downloading whatever the book is in your browser. And one of the interesting things about it is that so much of the time online, we're used to dealing with licenses. You, are, you aren't actually buying a copy of that you know, MP3 
you're buying a license to that, to that MP3. So on the one hand, it means that you don't actually own that particular copy, but it means that if you need to get another copy, because say you lose this first copy, you might be able to do that. Whereas with this system, it's really, like you said, much more like a vending machine. You know, you have the interaction. At the end of the interaction, everybody has what they wanted, and it's pretty much over. It really is kind of cool how you can just attach a server to listen to the, the fire hose of all Bitcoin transactions that are being broadcast in the world, uh, and then pick out the ones that are relevant to you and uh, have something uh, happen in response. And I just think that's really neat. In early 2013, you know, Bitcoin wasn't necessarily such an accepted topic as I think it's starting to be now in 2014 and 2015 as more VC money continues to pour into it and developments continue to pile on. Can you talk to us about what the experience was like of pitching a book like this? You mentioned the owner of No Starch Press was a, was a big Bitcoin believer. Was that true throughout the organization? I'm kind of curious, you know, did it change over time as you, as you created this book? That was actually kind of interesting when we were writing the book because Chris and I are like total believers in, in Bitcoin. And uh, so when we wrote the book, we would constantly say why we think it's such an awesome system. And our editors, who were not really so much into cryptocurrencies, thought that it was a little too much of a cheerleader type of approach. We should be a bit more balanced. So that it's, it's an interesting tension, you know, because clearly if somebody is writing a Bitcoin book, you would expect that they're kind of gung-ho on Bitcoin. And, uh, 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 but at the same time, if you're writing something on paper that's meant to be durable over time, you have to have a, an objective element there. So there was some effort to try to bring all those sort of ways of looking at Bitcoin together. It seems like there's kind of a natural tension there because, again, this is, it's a, most of the people who are the most knowledgeable about it really do approach it from kind of a hobbyist view, which to be a hobbyist, you need to be passionate about it. So yeah, I can totally see that. So at the very beginning of this conversation, Conrad, you mentioned that you were working on a comic project. And I, I'm wondering, I visited befuddle.org yesterday and uh, after seeing a reference to it in the text of the finished book and found your actually very long and somewhat interactive desert island, essentially, allegory for how the network does transactions and how all the cryptography happens. It was very interesting. So you made that before you wrote this book? Yeah, yeah. I, had, I designed out and done the initial sketches for that uh, beforehand. The basic idea behind the comic was, what if you had a shipwreck and you ended up with lots of cryptographers stranded on, on islands, and all they could do is send messages to each other with words? If you had that type of environment, how would you, if somebody sent you a message with a bird saying, I just sent you two bitcoins, how do you know that that's true? And in fact, in, in some way, that's analogous to what the bitcoin system has to solve. In this comic tale, I kind of put together a crazy system for handling blocks and ledgers and transactions and, uh, and establishing trust between uh, accounts. To me, that was one way of looking at getting some understanding of how Bitcoin works. And that's kind of what we tried to do with this book, is the book has kind of an almanac style. We cover sort of lots of topics in lots of different ways, and we kind of try to triangulate to help you to get an understanding. So we explain how the blockchain works in several different ways both with the Byzantine generals problem and also some other approaches so that somebody who's not necessarily a, a te technologist can you know, get a feel for, for what the, the appeal of the system is without understanding all the underlying details. So we're going to read a selection from the uh, book right after this. This is a little bit of a shorter interview that we generally do because I'd like to kind of get a, uh, a taste of the narrative and the type of uh, information that you've put together. So if somebody's interested in buying Bitcoin for the befuddled, 
what formats is it available in? Uh, you know, ebook, uh, hardback book. Do you have an audiobook version? And where are the places to go to get that? Well, you can certainly get it through uh, the nostarchpress.com site. You can get it through the O'Reilly Publishers site. You can get it through Amazon.com. And also, if you want to buy it with Bitcoin, through Cointagen.com. And we have all the uh, major Audible audio formats, PDF, Mobi, and EPUB, and of course, uh, a paperback version. Now, personally, I would recommend the paperback just because it is filled with uh, comics, including an internal uh, color comic section. So you would benefit from having the paperback version. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is Crowley. That's C-R-O-W-L-E-Y. Crowley. You've got until the 28th of January to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS application to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Today's episode, in addition to being sponsored by CryptoKit, received support from the BitShares Play Project, which I took some time this morning to look into. If you're an LTB listener, you probably are familiar with BitShares. Play is a project built with its own blockchain using the BitShares Toolkit. Its specific purpose is to provide trustless, decentralized, random number generation, which can be used as the basis for nearly any kind of game that involves a degree of randomness or chance. The Play white paper says plainly, quote, For clarity, BTS Play itself does not contain any built-in games. All the games associated with or supported by will be developed by third-party services. End quote. So the goal of the chain is to provide essentially decentralized, provable randomness on demand for those who want to use it for games. Those who want to use this for their own game can create a game token on the Play blockchain, which can trade against all other game tokens, and always against the platform token, called PLS. The project is deep. If this is your cup of tea, you can learn more at dacx.com play and click the EN for English language button to switch to the English language page. They have a token sale going on that ends on February 2nd, 2015. You can read all about it towards the bottom of the dacx play page if you're looking for that sort of thing. And of course, if you'd like to support the Let's Talk Bitcoin show beyond tipping, you can visit letstalkbitcoin.com and click the sponsor button at the top of the page. Here you'll see our terms of service. Once you've agreed to them, you'll find yourself at the sponsor page. Select letstalkbitcoin.com and choose the sponsor package you want. Package A gives you about 45 seconds of time during this part of the upcoming episode where I'll investigate and talk about your service. It's not an advertisement because the sponsor doesn't have the ability to say, no, don't say that. It's unscripted. Package B is a thank you during the ending credits. So during the part where I normally thank people for the music, content, and editing, 
We're adding a special thanks to the following sponsors for supporting this episode and then naming them out loud. This is also included in Sponsor Package A. We accept Bitcoin, LTB coin, and sponsor tokens. And for the on-air sponsorships I just described, donation amounts range from 25,000 LTB coin and 0.25 Bitcoin to 1.5 Bitcoin or 150,000 LTB coin. And that's the end of the sponsor section. So the second part of today's show is a little bit different. I enjoyed the Bitcoin for the Befuddled book, and looking through it, I actually found a couple of places that I wanted to read from. So the rest of today's episode comprises two small readings. First, a section about mining and the Byzantine general's problem in a somewhat simplified fashion. And then an interesting exploration of what using Bitcoin and what living your daily life might be like in the year 2030. Um, I thought both of these sections were really very enjoyable, and I think that you'll like them too. So without further ado, we'll jump right into these selections from the book Bitcoin for the Befuddled. Chapter 8. Bitcoin Mining New Bitcoins are created through Bitcoin mining. In some sense, Bitcoin mining is similar to digging for gold. It takes effort and time, hence the term mining. The difference between mining gold and mining Bitcoins is that a Bitcoin miner uses electricity and computational labor rather than physical labor. Mining is also the process by which new Bitcoin transactions are added to the blockchain or the public ledger. By adding a new block of transactions to the blockchain, The miner who added the block is rewarded with newly minted bitcoins, as well as old bitcoins in the form of transaction fees. The number of new bitcoins being mined from each block is diminishing slowly over time, and will continue to do so until all 21 million bitcoins have been excavated. But unlike mining for gold, bitcoin miners know exactly how many bitcoins are left to be mined. By 2140, every bitcoin will have been extracted and will be in circulation. Although it is potentially lucrative to mine bitcoins, it's not for everyone. As with gold, most people, regardless of how much they want gold, wouldn't go out and mine it themselves. Similarly, earning a profit mining bitcoins is challenging and risky. Should you mine bitcoins? Probably not. In this chapter, we'll explore the difficulties and hazards, but the short answer is that deciding whether to mine bitcoins is like deciding whether or not to mine gold. Mining gold in financially meaningful quantities requires a high degree of expertise, access to cheap labor and electricity, raising and risking significant capital, and waiting years for a return on investment. If you're reading this book, it's best for you to leave the Bitcoin mining to the professionals. However, if you're not motivated by profit and you just want to mine some trivial amount of Bitcoins for fun, you can certainly do that. Why is Bitcoin mining needed? Whenever someone creates a new currency, One awkward problem usually surfaces at the outset. They need to figure out how to distribute newly minted money. If a government creates the money, this problem is easily resolved. The government can simply compensate itself and use the money to pay for government services. Or, as in the United States, a government can use a complex scheme involving a Federal Reserve and a Treasury bond underwriting to lead to the same end result, giving the federal government capital it can spend that originated through the minting process. However, if you're creating a distributed currency like Bitcoin, without a central party, dispersing newly minted money is surprisingly difficult. Part of the genius of Bitcoin's design was that Satoshi found a sensible way to distribute Bitcoins. The currency would be given to people willing to do computational work to protect the network, aka the miners. Because protecting the Bitcoin network requires effort, time, and money, anyone willing to do this work would merit a monetary incentive. Therefore, Satoshi's strategy of using bitcoins as an incentive for miners acted as a decentralized mechanism for giving away new coins 
and created a community dedicated to protecting the network through the mining process. Let me tell you a little story to help you understand how mining protects the Bitcoin network. A parable of two generals. The fat king is dead, they yelled through the streets of the principality of Cryptoville the day the king died. King Carl was not popular with the common folk, for his cruelty to the peasants of his kingdom was exceeded only by his girth. Unfortunately, his son Crowley was crowned that same day, and he was believed to be very much his father's son. For this reason and more, two generals, the General of the North and the General of the South, banded together in a plan to overthrow the monarchy. Quickly, they were able to conquer most of the lands outside the castle walls. All that remained to free the land from tyranny was to storm Castle Crypto. The two generals' armies gathered at the north and south sides of the wall. On the east and west sides of the castle were the Cragley Mountains, a treacherous mountain range with steep cliffs that had taken the lives of many cryptovillians throughout the ages. On the south side of the castle, the general of the south exclaimed, Yes, this is the time to strike. I shall send a message to the north to begin the attack. However, it then occurred to the general that his messenger would have to cross the Cragley Mountains. What if a mishap prevented the message from getting through? If this happened, he, the general of the south, would attack the castle on his own and might be defeated by the foe. So, the general of the south revised his plan. I will send a message to the north to attack, and will ask the general of the north to send a confirming reply indicating that he received my message. When the general of the north received the message, he declared, Splendid! Surely we will be victorious. I shall send the confirmation to the south. Oh, but just to be sure, I'll ask the general of the south to return a message so I know he received my confirmation. I definitely wouldn't want to attack the castle on my own. After receiving the confirmation, the general of the south asserted, Great, we're almost ready. Now all I need to do is wait for the north to send a confirmation that the general received the confirmation of my confirmation. Victory shall be ours as soon as I get my answer, maybe sometime tomorrow. That night, King Crowley's henchmen snuck into the north and south camps and assassinated both generals as they slept. Applying the Parable to Bitcoin In the story of the two generals, two parties needed to achieve a consensus on a plan. However, their mode of communication was based on unreliable methods, the messengers who had crossed the perilous mountains. As a result, their naive attempt to attain this consensus created an infinite loop of confirmation for confirmation that led to their doom. Could the generals have used another strategy to coordinate their attack? The parable is based on an old math problem that was studied long before the existence of Bitcoin. The short answer to the question is that the generals would never be 100% certain that the other general had agreed to participate in the attack, and this can be proven mathematically. A more generalized version of this puzzle, called the Byzantine generals problem, is the same as the preceding parable, except more is at play than just two generals. With this generalized version of the puzzle, with more than two armies, we can posit not only that the messages are unreliable, but also that one or both generals may be in cahoots with King Crowley, sending misleading messages to the other generals. This is precisely the problem a decentralized cryptocurrency needs to solve to determine which Bitcoin transactions sent across the network are valid. That is, if two conflicting transactions are sent via the network and involve the same coins, which of those transactions should take precedence? In fact, Bitcoin offers a probabilistic solution to the Byzantine general's problem. In essence, the generals need to mine blocks that require significant computational resources to solve. In those blocks, they state the exact time the attack should occur. Also, as soon as a general finds out that another block has been completed, that general should cease his efforts to create a new standalone block. Instead, each general should simply create a block containing the message, quote, 
I confirm that I agree with the time in the block by General ABC, end quote. Then other generals should create their block to link to this block and include the message I confirm with the confirmation of General XYZ of the time by General ABC. By continuing this process indefinitely, these blocks will form a blockchain, adding weight to the time suggested in the initial block, a Genesis block. This exact blockchain strategy was described by Satoshi soon after he created Bitcoin. However, a couple of open questions remain about this algorithm's description. Aren't we back to square one, piling confirmations on top of confirmations ad infinitum? Surprisingly, the answer is no. Because of the computational effort involved in creating blocks, every new block generated as a confirmation of a previous block provides statistical information about the total computational power possessed by the entire population of generals. Consequently, when a given Genesis block is approximately six more confirmations amassed on it than any other Genesis block, the result is almost, but not quite, absolute certainty that the majority of generals are in agreement with the suggested attack time. However, because this is a probabilistic solution, certainty will always be a bit less than 100%, which is why the original two generals problem is still considered unsolved in a purely theoretical sense. But with Satoshi's approach, certainty can be arbitrarily close to 100%. This approach of using proof-of-work in a blockchain to coordinate the attack of generals still has a subtle flaw. A general who is lazy could cheat the network by never using her computer to mine blocks. Because blocks are awarded randomly by solving the mining puzzle, any one general could leave her computer turned off for the entire process, saving electricity, but still benefiting from the consensus. No one would discover that she shirked her duty because not every participant will successfully mine blocks in any case. But in the case of Bitcoin, Satoshi had the genius to add an extra detail that solves this freeloader problem. The system pays miners with bitcoins as a reward. By paying a handsome reward, the Bitcoin network maintains an adequate number of miners at all time. A reward that is not possible in the simpler solution to the Byzantine General's problem without a currency built into the network. The second part of today's reading from Bitcoin for the Befuddled comes in the last chapter, actually. This is a really interesting chapter because it's where the authors envision essentially what Bitcoin will look like in 2030. And they have a bunch of disclaimers at the front that I'm not going to spend the time to read, but I just want to start from uh, a day in the life of a Bitcoiner in 2030. And once again, remind you that this is from the book Bitcoin for the Befuddled, which is available now. Uh, you, you can buy with Bitcoin at uh, cointagion.com, C-O-I-N-T-A-G-I-O-N.com, or uh, at Amazon or any of the other various places. And I definitely do recommend that you get a version where you can appreciate the pictures. I have my primary copy on a Kindle Paperwhite, and you can't really appreciate some of the comics, but there's a lot of images in this, and it's, it's pretty good, actually. So anyways, uh, a day in the life of a Bitcoiner in 2030. Let's follow Crowley as his day unfolds. It all starts when Crowley wakes up in the morning. Crowley wears his sleep-optimizing bracelet at night, which uploads his pre-waking vital signs anonymously to the internet. Using this information, machine learning systems across the world use bitcoins to bid on the time Crowley's alarm clock should go off, given his physical condition and sleep-slash-wake cycle. The winning bid is the one that lets Crowley sleep the longest. Because Crowley likes to take long, hot showers in the morning, he used to run out of hot water. But recently, a resident in his apartment building installed an industrial-grade hot water heater and is now selling hot water to other tenants to help with the cost. A chip in Crowley's hot water faucet automatically dispenses Bitcoin directly to a chip in the hot water heater. As Crowley turns the shower knob clockwise, more Bitcoins are dispensed and more hot water streams from the showerhead. 
As Crowley leaves his house, he beams a few Satoshis from his wristwatch to one of the robotic lawnmowers mowing his lawn. A lawnmower repair shop down the street builds these mowers and provides them for free. Each lawnmower collects its own earnings and uses the Bitcoin to pay programmers on the internet to improve its AI algorithm so that it can earn more. In addition, the mowers visit the lawnmower repair shop to get upgrades and pay there with their Bitcoin earnings as well. Today, Crowley missed his bus on his way to work. Apparently, the winning alarm clock bidder failed to detect Crowley's hangover this morning and cut the time too close. Usually, his bracelet would now dispense 20 satoshis to the winning bidder as a reward. However, because the bracelet calculates that Crowley has missed his bus, it draws upon a 100 satoshi insurance pool from an escrow account that the winning alarm clock bidder had set up as part of the bidding process. As a result, the winner loses money on today's bid. The programmer has some algorithm debugging to do. With the Satoshis from the escrow account, the bracelet starts an impromptu Bitcoin auction with all nearby, parked, self-driving cars to determine if any are willing to rent to Crowley. After entering the winning car, Crowley is off to work. Today, Crowley's real estate client is buying a house. Ever since the 2023 Digital Real Estate Reform Act, all houses are managed by simply tracking ownership of a single, specific Satoshi assigned to each property. This Satoshi acts as a colored coin, much like a title search in 2014. In effect, if the Satoshi is handed to another person, the new person is assigned legal ownership of the property. In 2030, Crowley just asks his Bitcoin wallet to do a title search by tracking the ownership of the Satoshi linked to the house throughout the blockchain. Not only is this the equivalent of an exhaustive title search and guaranteed to be 100% accurate, but his wallet software does this search instantaneously and for free. To complete the sale of the house, the buyer and seller simply enter a multi-signature transaction. In a single transaction, the buyer sends 150 microbits of Bitcoin, the cost of the house, to the seller's address, and the seller sends the single-colored Satoshi to the buyer. By using a single transaction, no sale can happen until both parties have signed the transaction with their private key. The transaction also contains a 1% commission that's sent to the real estate agent's address. Because the blockchain was used to track property ownership, the entire title insurance and closing costs for the house, sans agent commission, is just the transaction fee, which may cost less than a penny. After his workday is done, Crowley sends some money to his mom, who is a Nile crocodile. Her village, like every village in Burundi in the year 2030, has a Bitcoin booth that converts Bitcoins to Burundian francs for a mere 0.5% commission. Of course, anyone can buy most items directly using Bitcoins anywhere in the world nowadays, so that commission is not a necessary expense. Instead of catching the bus, Crowley decides to get some exercise in this beautiful day and get dinner on his walk home. Unbeknownst to Crowley, a woman named Sophia who lives on the street he's walking down has just made a big salad for her family and realizes she's made too much and will have leftovers. For this reason, she takes a picture of the leftover salad and uploads it to a food-sharing website. On the site, reviewers are paid with bitcoins to supply estimates on the tastiness of this salad. Within a few seconds, Crowley's phone rings because earlier he had put in a request for a meal of at least 8 out of 10 rating and tastiness for no more than 15 satoshis that he could obtain on his way home. And Sophia's salad meets his requirements. When Crowley rings Sophia's doorbell, an NFC chip in the doorbell communicates with Crowley's wristwatch to establish a contract for the dinner salad. Automatically, the doorbell sends Crowley's wristwatch a bill for 15 satoshis for entry into Sophia's impromptu restaurant. How does Sophia know she can trust Crowley in her house? Crowley subscribes to an anonymous rating service, which for a one satoshi fee, guarantees to Sophia that Crowley's trustworthiness score is 9.5 out of 10. 
This rating service is built into the Bitcoin blockchain in the form of a script. Users pay small fees to be part of the rating service, and the rating service, a computer program, uses these fees to pay for its online ads. In effect, it's a financial entity without an owner, living in cyberspace, paying for its own resources. This type of entity, called a distributed autonomous corporation, is made possible by blockchain technology. After a long day at work, finally at home, Crowley relaxes in his recliner in front of the tube. In the middle of his favorite movie, Harry Potter and the Fork Blockchain, a pizza commercial appears. Darn, he exclaims. That was a healthy salad I had for dinner today, but I could really go for a pizza chaser. The reason this commercial suddenly interrupts Crowley's movie is not coincidental. Just at that moment, a pizza van driving by his house enters an automatic Bitcoin ad auction with Crowley's TV, earning the right to show its pizza commercial. All Crowley has to do is simply open his mouth. In response, the gesture recognition system in Crowley's TV automatically sends eight Satoshis to the pizza's van. In short order, the pizza van places a slice of pizza on a conveyor belt that extends from Crowley's house. Within seconds, a robotic arm reaches out from the base of Crowley's recliner, grabs the slice of pizza from the conveyor belt, and stuffs it in Crowley's mouth. You might have thought that a world built entirely on decentralized transactions would be a horrific dystopia, but after reading the awesome description of a day in the life of your typical Bitcoiner in the year 2030, where everything operates via Bitcoin, we're sure your worries have been conclusively put to rest. Thanks for listening to episode 181 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was made possible in part by CryptoKit.com and the BitShares Play Project. Content for today's episode was provided by Conrad, Chris, and Adam. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.